Well, as we turn in our Bible today to Judges chapter 7, we're going to be picking up the cliffhanger that we left off a few weeks ago. You'll remember that Gideon was crouching at the edge of the enemy's camp on the night before battle. God had strengthened Gideon's faith as he allowed him to hear two Midianite soldiers discussing a dream that they had had that showed how God would use Gideon and his small band of 300 men to overcome the enemy army of 135,000. So we continue looking at this passage today. It's easy to look at it and just say, well, this is just a nice story, and to separate ourselves from it and to go on. But what I want you to remember as we look at this passage today is this is a real event. This is a real event that happened where there was a set of overwhelming odds where 300 men were facing an army of 135,000. And what it shows us today is that we have a real God, a powerful God, who is able to overwhelm even overwhelming odds. And so this truth is something that can help to encourage us in those times where we too face difficult things. This morning as you are facing hard things in your life, whether it's health issues or family troubles or finance issues or problems at work, the story that we're going to look at today is an account that shows us we have a real God who is a powerful God and can help us in the midst of those times. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin by reading Judges chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. It says, And it came about when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation that he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel, and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside of the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpet all around the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, as I read that passage, I kind of had flashbacks to some of the days when I was a police officer in Dallas, as we were preparing to run a high-risk warrant or go into a kind of tactical situation, we would go into the ready room. The plan of how the, the warrant was going to be run or the raid was going to happen would be put up on the board in the detail room. We, we would rehearse the plan. You would add extra equipment. You were already wearing a bulletproof vest. You would put on additional body armor. You put on your Kevlar helmet, your face mask. Uh, you opened up the weapons locker. You would get flashbang grenades out. You'd get your assault rifle out, sometimes setting it to these three-burst uh, settings, and then you would prepare to go into whatever situation you were dealing with. And here the scene is similar. The men gather together. They're rehearsing the plan. They're geared up. They're given a horn to blow, a jar to shatter, a torch to shine, and their voice to shout. Now, I want you to put yourself in that situation for a moment. Imagine this is the weapons that were just handed to you. How many of you would look at this stuff and say, really? This is my battle rattle. This is what I'm going into combat with. Would you have said, hey, uh, Gideon, is that offer from verse 3 still available? Do you remember where when it said if you were afraid you could leave and 22,000 of the soldiers left, uh, would you have been one of those guys saying, hey, I'm, I want that offer now? Or would you do as these guys did? This group who says our confidence comes from what we see in verse 15 where Gideon said, the Lord has given the camp. Of Midian into your hands. 
You know, as they listen at what they're called to do, they don't hear, okay, each one of you is responsible for taking out 450 enemy troops. Each one of you has a job to do where you have to take down 450 enemies. Instead, what they're told, their job and our job today is to trust God. Obey the things that God has called you to do. Gary Enrig says of this passage, it's not our responsibility to understand how God is going to keep his word or accomplish his work. Our responsibility is to know what he calls us to do and to do it. You know, in those times where we feel outnumbered or ill-equipped, 2 Corinthians is a book that helps us to understand what we're to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4 reminds us, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 7 goes on to say, You are looking at things as they are outwardly, but our confidence comes from Christ. 2 Corinthians tells us, with God, we have everything we need for whatever battle we're facing. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, we're told, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, and not from ourselves. 2 Corinthians describes our bodies as being earthen vessels, literally clay pots. And here Gideon and his guys are given clay jars with torches of light inside. And God says, when you shatter that container, the light will shine. And what we're told in Matthew 5.16 is, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now in Judges 7, 19 through 22, we see what happens as the battle begins. It says, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held their torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one another, even throughout the camp. And the army fled as far as Beshetah towards Zerah at the edge of Abel Mahalah by Tabitha. Now, as we've seen over and over in this series, God is in control. And once again, he takes control of the events because what happens is this army of 300 men comes down off the the hill they were on. They go through the valley, and they come to the outskirts of the camp. Now, the enemy knew they were there. They would have had sentries who were out watching. But God brings this full group right to the outskirts of the camp. Now, the sentries were out, but, you know, the Midianites really weren't that worried at this point. They had watched an army of 32,000 dwindle down to 300. All that was left in the Israelite camp is a bunch of trampled grass and cold campfires. But now in the dead of the night, suddenly they think we've been tricked. 
The army must have, you know, circled back around and now they've surrounded the camp. As these jars are broken, as these trumpets are blown, they suddenly see multiple flashes of light that pierce the darkness. Each trumpet was usually used to control an entire company of men. So they think there's this massive army that is suddenly descending upon their camp. Verse 13 says this happens at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch. Now, the middle watch started at 10 p.m. and went to 2 a.m. And so what that means is most of the Midianite army was already in their their tents. They've turned in for the night. These soldiers have been asleep. Uh, Those guys who have been standing watch are tired. They're ready to get in their bunks, and they're, they're coming off duty and walking through uh, the tents to get back to theirs. The guys who are going on duty for deep night watch are, are groggy. They're shaking the sleep off as they're going to their post. And right as these two groups are, are changing out, uh, this whole thing happens. Jars are broken. Points of light are everywhere. Ma- you know, trumpet after trumpet suddenly starts sounding. And as this commotion is happening, the bulk of the soldiers who are sleeping are suddenly startled awake. And, and as they're disoriented in their tents, they look out and they see shadows moving by their tents. These are the, the guards coming off duty, going back to their tents, but they don't know that. They see these lights all around the camp on three sides. Gideon's got 100 guys here, 100 here, 100 here. There's this kind of open funnel down at the end. And they think, well, the, the enemy has already infiltrated the camp. They're pouring through. So if you're the guy in your bunk waking up, you look out, see a shadow going by, you think this is an enemy. And you come running out of your tent. You're not in uniform. You've just, you know, woken up. So the, the guards coming off duty uh, can easily mistake you for, for not being a part of their army. And suddenly there's this clash between these soldiers in the night. As this commotion is happening, every time sword hits sword, every time there's a scream of a wounded man, it just further feeds the panic. And more and more guys as they're pouring out of their tents and this is going on. And remember, as we saw back in verse 14, the camels were as numerous as the sand. As the chaos is happening, uh, many of these camels are spooked and they break loose from their, their little pens and they're, they're trampling through the, the camp, adding to the chaos and the carnage as people are being trampled, tents are being knocked over. And as all of this is happening, the Israelites are standing safely on the outskirts, waving their torches, shouting and blowing their trumpets, giving us a great picture of Proverbs 28.1, which says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, as I said, Gideon and his guys are deployed in three groups. It creates a funnel where as the soldiers are in the midst of this battle, those who are saying, we've got to retreat, it's it's hopeless, the battle's lost, they begin to, to pour out to the southeast because that's where verse 22 mentioned the cities. Verses 23 through 25 tell us, that as they're, they're, they're fleeing to the southeast, they're trying to cross the Jordan River. It says, And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh. These are tribes of Israel. And they pursued Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, while they pursued Midian. 
And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. I want you to rewind your memory tapes to chapter 6. Do you remember when we first met Gideon, where he was? He was this scared guy hiding in a wine press. And after his encounter with God, he offers a sacrifice on on the rock there. And it's a a fitting bookend to the story because it started in a wine press and with a rock. And these enemy commanders are killed at a wine press and a rock. And we see that they're they're renamed. It it becomes uh, a place where when people say, why do we call that the rock of Oriv or the the wine press of Zeb? People say, oh, that's because this was where a great victory happened. This is where General Oriv was killed. This is where Zeb met his end. You'll remember in an earlier message, we talked about the need to have Ebenezer's in our life, those rocks of remembrance where God calls on us to have tangible reminders. So in those times where our faith is challenged, in those times where we struggle and we're saying, God, where are you? God, I haven't seen you work. We can look at something and say, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember when God uh, gave me that victory. I remember where God came through. I remember in that hopeless time where I didn't think uh, I could make it, how God showed up. And it would be a testimony not only to those in that day, but future generations who said, why is this place called that? And they could recount the the victory that God gave them. Now, just as everything looks like it's going well, we see as chapter 8 begins that the wheels of the bus threaten to come off because there's a danger of disunity. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this thing that you have done to us? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. And they contended with him vigorously. You know, as this delegation from Ephraim shows up, you would think that somehow Gideon blew the battle plan. That the enemy overcame the Israelites, and now the enemy was mad and was retaliating and was burning and pillaging through the land, uh, and that somehow uh, the, the whole thing had failed. But the exact opposite had occurred. It was the Midianites who were destroyed. It was the Israelites who were having this miraculous victory. And, and what should have happened is that the Ephraimites should have been celebrating that success. But instead, the ugly sin of pride shows up. The ugly sin of pride is Ephraim says, hey, you're getting the glory and we're left out. But what we saw in chapter 7 and verse 2 is the glory belonged only to God. This wasn't Gideon's glory. This was God's glory. And the tribe of Ephraim, these fellow Jews, shouldn't have been trying to grab glory for themselves. They should have said, praise God that this is happening. But the problem was Ephraim was used to being the big men on campus. They were the biggest and the strongest of the tribes at the time. There was a a great general from their tribe named Joshua who had led Israel in the past. The major religious centers of Bethel, Shiloh, and where the tabernacle were located were all in the territory of Ephraim. They were used to having the spotlight. And suddenly the spotlight has shifted off of them and they didn't like it. And so they lash out at Gideon. Now, when we get to Judges chapter 12, we're going to see the same thing happens there. Because in Judges 12, 1 through 4, it tells us, Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Saphon, and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? (laughs) Are you seeing a pattern with these guys? They say, We will burn your house down on you. 
And Jephthah said to them, I and my people were a great strife with the sons of Ammon when I called you and you did not deliver me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and I crossed over against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and he fought Ephraim and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. Do you know anybody like the Ephraimites? Have you ever met those people who are, are, are brave when the victory's won or, or the critic who shows up to tell you how everything you're doing is wrong or the decision you made should have been a different decision, but they're rarely there to be involved in that process themselves or to take part in it? You know, there are plenty of people who will sit on the sideline as a spectator. And then when the, the victory is won, when it's time to share in the spoils or take credit, they show up. This was Ephraim. Ephraim says, you know, we would have come if we had known what was happening. How did they not know what was happening? Ephraim is the neighboring tribe to everything we've seen earlier. When the 32,000 men were gathering for battle, Ephraim saw it. Ephraim heard about it. They didn't send anybody to come. They were thinking, you guys are dumb. You're, you're going to, you know, it's like kicking a hornet's nest. You're going to stir up the enemy. Things are going to happen. Retaliation's going to come. We don't want any part of it. And even if they had missed the initial invitation when this battle takes place and the enemy is, is retreating, it's going right back through their territory. They would have been sitting on their front porches watching 15,000 soldiers running by, and they would have said, hey, what's going on? But they don't get involved. Instead of going after the enemy, they instead go after Gideon. And as we just read as a preview from what's to come in chapter 12, Ephraim's hurt pride there will cause a civil war to happen in Israel. And the same thing could have happened here, except for what happens is that Gideon has a different reaction. He takes a humble approach. He goes to them in Judges chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. It says, But Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. You see, again, we have a great example from Gideon, a perfect picture of Proverbs 15.1, which says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Gideon at that moment could have said, Oh, you want to, you want to do this now? You want to talk about this? Great. Let's pour some gas on the fire. But instead, he pours water on the fire. Now, as the men of Ephraim are attacking Gideon, uh, I'm sure on a personal level there was plenty Gideon wanted to say to them. He could have taken the sarcastic approach. Oh, guys, I'm so sorry. Did your engraved invitation not arrive in the mail? Uh, did I have the right address? Oh, yeah, I didn't send it because I was too busy battling the enemy. Oh, you guys are the big bad tribe. You're the ones who are the strongest. You're the ones who should have led us in battle. I'm so sorry. Why didn't I let you guys lead? Oh, yeah, because for the last seven years you've done nothing as the enemy has been coming in time after time, wiping out the crops, decimating the land. You've sat by and done nothing just like you did this time. 
But instead of defending himself, Gideon swallows hard. He absorbs the criticism. And he keeps the focus where it needs to be. He says, it's not about me. It's about getting God's work done. God gave us a mission, and I'm going to stay on mission. You know, ministry sometimes is like this. Uh, Our pastoral team and our staff here at Wayside, we have a lot of leadership axioms we use. And one of those that our team here hears me talk about periodically is, uh, this is an opportunity for us to eat crow for Christ. We're going to eat crow for Christ here. When somebody's criticizing something or unhappy about a decision, it's easy to step up and say, well, I'm going I'm to tell you why we did what we did and, and you know, defend ourselves. But instead, what we do is we say, how do we keep the main thing the main thing? How do we keep the focus on the gospel? How do we focus on keeping the mission going forward that God has called us to as a church and as a ministry? And so you say this is an opportunity to eat crow for Christ, to step back, absorb it, and move forward. Now, I'm not telling you you never confront wrong. There are times when there's a theological issue or a divisive person or a situation that's bringing damage to the ministry or the unity in the body. You confront that. You have to. But what I'm saying is we have to ask ourselves individually as well, whenever we're faced with a personal situation, is there something I can do here to to move uh, this forward for the cause of Christ? How do I keep the main thing the main thing? You know, there's nothing that Satan loves more than to get Christians fighting each other. Because what it does is it takes our focus off of him and it creates a civil war. And we go from fighting the foe to fighting the family. But what the Bible tells us in Ephesians 6.12 is our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The translation is our battle is not with other believers, it's against Satan and those who are on his side. And this is something we need to remember in our own lives. There are many times I will sit down with a couple who has a crisis in their marriage and I remind them, you know, your mate is not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Satan is the one who wants to destroy your family. Satan is the one who's been trying to destroy families, men and women, from the very beginning. When the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, were in the garden together, he went after them. He tried to destroy that nuclear unit that God had brought together. And so as as you're dealing with difficulty, whether it's in your home or, or out in the world around you, Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 25, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. In any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Many of you remember General Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was a great military leader, as well as the past president of the United States. And he had uh, what is called the Eisenhower dictum. It was a simple strategy for victory. And it says, do not let disintegration happen from within. That which you seek to protect is from without. A house divided against itself cannot stand. We're seeing that right now in our country as, as there is a battle right now going on in our nation and we are being divided and destroyed. A past issue of National Geographic uh, was talking about what happens when, when you know, those fight each other that are normally together. And in it, it showed a picture of the fossil remains of two saber-toothed tigers that had died as they were locked together in combat. 
underneath the picture of these fossilized remains, it said one had bitten deep into the leg bone of the other, a thrust that trapped both in a common fate. The cause of death of these two cats is clear as the two great tigers had turned from hunting others to fighting themselves. Paul warns us in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Stuart Briscoe wrote a book called Bound for Joy. In it, he says, hands and teeth usually get along well together, particularly if they belong to the same body. Hands have been known to punch teeth and teeth to bite hands, but rarely on the same body. But that's what happens when Christians fight each other. They bite their own hands and they punch their own teeth. As I said, brothers and sisters in Christ, there are times to fight. If there's heresy, bad theology that threatens to uh, draw people away from the truth of the gospel, we're to stand up and fight for that. But when it's about a personal preference or the way we like it, uh, we have to set those things aside. and We have to keep the main thing the main thing. And here Gideon, instead of getting into a fight with his family, with the other Jews, by getting in a battle with them, he keeps his focus on the true foe. And rather than blasting back, he offers a blessing instead. He uses a picture of a grape harvest to describe God's victory. Now, in a harvest, there's the initial gathering of fruit. The first wave will come through and, and, and pick the, the grapes. But then a second wave comes through, and they do what's called gleaning, where they, they clean up all that had been missed. And as Gideon uses this image, he says, you know, he could have taken the spotlight and said, you know, I'm the guy who led the battle. I'm the man with my small band of brothers. We went in and we overwhelmed the enemy and we we had this great victory. And then you guys came along and you just kind of scrounged around for our leftovers. But instead of that, Gideon takes a humble approach. And he says, I'm going to take that story and I'm going to bury it on page two. And I'm going to give the Ephraimites the headlines. I'm going to tell how you guys captured the two great generals how you took out the leaders. And we see his words placate their wounded pride because they happily return to their home. Ironically, they leave Gideon to keep fighting. Do do you remember why they showed up in the first place? Hey, why didn't you call us when there was a fight? We would have come. And Gideon said, well, there's still 15,000 guys to take out. And Ephraim says, we're good. We're going home. So in Judges 8, 4 through 9, it tells us, Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. And he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary, and I am pursuing Zeba and Salmona, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Salmona already in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? And Gideon said, All right. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmana into my hands, then I will thrash your bodies with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up from there to Penuel, and he spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Sukkoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Friends, here we see that our foe Satan is a relentless enemy. 
And he keeps working his strategy of disunity. Gideon has just dealt with one problem with the tribe of Ephraim. He's moved 40 miles further to the east, and he encounters the same problem. These were Israelite towns that were located on the east side of the Jordan. These are the homes of fellow Jews. It should have been a place of rest and refreshment. They should have welcomed Gideon and his guys in and said, man, you guys have been fighting all night. You're traveling hard. You're, you're worn out. You're thirsty. You're hungry. Here's, here's food to refuel. Let us, you know, help you. And instead of doing all of that, giving provisions, the men of Sukkot not only refused, but they also mock him. The same thing happened six miles further down the road at Penuel, a name that literally means the face of God. Instead of seeing God reflected in his fellow Jews, men and women who should have encouraged and lifted him up, they instead go as far as to laugh in the face of God. Because remember, it was ultimately God who was fighting through Gideon in this band of 300. But the people in those towns forgot about God. And because of that, they only see this small group of 300 exhausted, battle-weary soldiers. And they say, there is no way that you guys can defeat that army that we saw retreating through here. There were 15,000 of them. They've now made it to their home territory. They're in their fortified city. There is no way you're going to be able to defeat them. And so they're saying, look, we're, we're right here on the doorstep. And when they regroup, they're going to come back in and they're going to take it out on us if we help you. We're going to be the victims of the retaliation that comes if you fail to overcome them. So they say, hey, listen. Why don't you come back and see us when you have the hands of the enemy kings? You know why they asked for the hands? Because kings would wear a signet ring that showed their authority. So they say, go cut off their hands, bring it back, and show us that this is the kings that you killed. And then we'll help you guys out. The great civil rights leader of the past, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., once said this, He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who perpetuates it. He who accepts evil without actively protesting against it is really cooperating with it. When the people in those towns refused to feed Gideon and his men, they weren't just being neutral. They were actively helping the enemy. The Israelites in those cities needed to get in the game. They needed to fight with Gideon. At the very least, strengthening and refueling and resupplying his army. Even better, they should have joined in in the fight. But instead, they stood back and passively said, "Uh, we're not going to get involved. We live in a day where there is a battle going on in our society at multiple levels. And it's very easy for us to, to say, you know what? I'm I'm just going to step back. I'm weary of the fighting about social justice and racism. I'm weary of the battle about abortion that's about to go before the U.S. Supreme Court. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be on our knees and praying for that horrendous law to be overturned of Roe versus Wade. There's a battle going on in society, and it's easy to just say, I'm going to sit this one out. And what God says is, you need to be in the fight. You need to be involved. God is calling all of us to get in the fight. For some, that means you're going to be the frontline soldier. 
You're going to be the tip of the spear. You're going to be Gideon and the band of 300 who are actively on the front line battling the enemy. For others of us, it means that we are the logistical support. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is necessary for ministry to take place. Some of you, your ministry is to be a prayer warrior, to support the ministries of Wayside and other Christian organizations through prayer. It's to be the financial supporter to be that logistical support behind the scenes that allows ministry to be funded and to happen. Those are all vital roles. You heard earlier in this service the announcement about our EchoCon weekend coming. We call our student ministry ECHO because it's to echo what the Word of God says into the lives of kids as well as to echo what parents are teaching their children at home. So the EchoCon, Echo Conference, is our discipleship weekend that we do once a year where we take the kids out of their home environment and we put them in host homes around the city starting on a Friday night and then all day Saturday into Sunday morning where we pour into these students, our middle school and our high school students. Currently, there are over 100 of our students that are registered to take part in EchoCon. And as you heard, it's not too late uh, if you haven't signed up, but that deadline's coming. And in order for that event to happen, in order to pour into the lives of our students, it takes an army of people to support it. There are 14 families who have volunteered to open up their homes these kids will live in their homes for the weekend. You can imagine having, you know, a bunch of kids in your house for, for the weekend. We divide them by grades and by gender. The 10th grade girls will be in one home. The 11th grade boys will be in another home. And so they're in these various host homes where they're having small group times as well as coming together for large group teaching and events. And that also means we have to have drivers that move the kids and leaders from the homes to the places uh, where these events are happening. So there's still a need for additional drivers. Uh, We need to feed them. Now, you're not feeding 100-plus people, so don't worry about that. But maybe you're saying, I'm a person who has a gift of hospitality. I love to cook. I love uh, to do these type of, you know, support ministries. And here's where you can take a, a meal for one of the locations, and you can feed, you know, a breakfast, a lunch, or a dinner Uh, during that weekend. And so this is what we're seeing happening right here with Gideon and his army. He says, we're on the front line fighting and we need some support. We need some help. But the men and women of those cities said, we're going to sit this out. And as we look at what happens, Gideon in our passage says says to these guys, that's fine, I'm going to stay on mission. He says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, and then I'm going to deal with you, but first I'm going to accomplish the mission that God has given me. Now, in Judges 8.15, we see how they're laughing at him. It says they taunted him. We're not told the words that were said, but you can imagine. They said, ooh, we're scared. (laughs) Great, Gideon. You and this worn-out group of guys are going to go into the the enemy's territory, go up against a fortified city of 15,000 soldiers and then others who were there. You're not coming back. The only way you're coming back is in a box because they're going to kill you. So they say, we're not worried about it. And Gideon could have just said, fine, I'm not going to go fight them. I'm just going to take care of you right now and your disrespect. And then he would have been drawn off mission as he fought the family instead of the foe. And while that may have seemed satisfying, instead he says, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And so in verses 10 through 12, we see where he gets back on the road. He goes another 20 miles to the Midianite city of Karkor. 
And what he does there is he launches another surprise attack. Instead of taking the shortcut and coming right into the front door, he goes deep into the enemy's territory. He circles around and he comes in the back door. And God again gives him a miraculous victory as 300 battle-weary men defeat the remaining 15,000 Midianites. Friends, as we come to a close today, I know we live in a world where there are multiple fights happening. And I know many of you are tired. Many of you are weary and you're saying, I just, Roger, I just don't have it in me to keep fighting the fight. And if that's how you feel this morning, I want you to listen to the words of a guy by the name of Gentleman Jim Corbett. He was a, a heavyweight boxer back around the end of the 19th century. And for five years, he held the title as champion. And he said these words, when your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard and fight, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you are so tired that you wish your opponent would just crack you on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. Remembering that the man who fights one more round is never defeated. Friends, I know many of you are facing battles right now and you're tired. We face an enemy in the world who is real and powerful. The Bible warns us that Satan is like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. I know some of you are fighting battles with your own family right now. And you're weary battling with your family and your mate and your marriage or your extended family. The very people who should be encouraging and strengthening you are draining your tank, just as Gideon found with his fellow Jews. Those who should have offered help and refreshment in your lives are draining you. And as you face those fights, it's tempting to quit. But instead of quitting, turn to God. Give God the battles that you're facing and ask him to help you. Ask for his help to keep going. In those times where you're not sure if you can go one more round, then go back and read Judges 8.4, where it says, Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. Gideon and his men were tired and hungry, and even though they were denied provisions and help that they needed, they fought one more round, and God gave them another miraculous victory. They overcame and defeated the remnant of the Midianite army, and peace was going to come into the land. As you think about the fights that we are facing as a country, as a family, as a church, wherever it is, at, at school or work, in the military, whatever it is you're facing, friends, fight one more round. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, you tell us in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Lord God, would you help us to keep our eyes on you? As we face the battles in the world, as we grow weary, would you help us to fight one more round? knowing that with you there is ultimately victory. God, you've shown us that you are capable of overwhelming everything, including death. As you went to the cross and you defeated sin, death, and Satan, Jesus, as you gave your life to give us the gift of eternal life, as you overcame the grave, as you came out on the third day showing you had conquered even death, 
God, you are capable of stepping into whatever battle we are facing with us. And so today, God, we invite you in. As a nation, we need your help. As a church, we need your help. As individuals in, that have families that are in crisis, we need your help. God, as we face the world and all that society is pushing in our schools, in our workplaces, out on the streets, we need your help. And so, God, we turn to you today. We ask for your strength and your help. And we ask that you would use us, that we would step up and we would fight one more round in faith, leaning on you and trusting in you, God, for the victory. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.